Hi there, Karen here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. As a result, you may experience varying microphone levels. Thanks for understanding, and thanks for listening. Nearly 5,000 years ago in southwestern China, near what is now Yunnan province, a cherished leader is about to make a discovery for the ages. Moving through the late autumn garden, Emperor Shen Nung takes his seat under a native camellia tree. He admires the vibrant pink of its flowers, greeting it as the old friend that it is. It's a ritual essential to his commune with nature, to his lifelong mission of learning its secrets. In this lush green sanctuary, he boils a pot of water to drink. The steam rises to his nose, and a slight breeze brushes his cheek. It stirs the dried leaves of the tree, which drop to his lap. Several find their way into the boiling water. Shen Nun watches in wonder as the leaves infuse the water with a new color and aroma. He pours the new infusion into a cup and lifts it to his lips, sipping the very first delicious cup of tea. What is this wonderful substance? Emperor Shen Nun has discovered a truly astonishing beverage. Right here, a serendipitous meeting of tea leaf and hot water begins a legacy that will literally transform not just the future of China, but of the entire world for millennia to come. Or so the legend goes. Hey there, I'm Dr. Karen Bellinger, anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome back to Working Over Time, the podcast that examines society through the lens of work, over time, and across cultures. Today, we're riding the time machine straight back to ancient China to discuss the origins and evolution of one of the world's oldest industries, tea. Today's show is all about the work of ancient Chinese tea farmers, guided by Dr. Justin Hill, author, historian, and tea aficionado. We'll cover what was and still is required to source and prepare a dizzying array of tea varieties. And we'll explore the origins of tea as the world's first global commodity and its continued cultural importance in China and around the world. So, Grab a nice warm cup of your favorite infusion, sit back, and enjoy our ancient tales of tea. My guest today is Dr. Justin Hill. Justin is a historian and award-winning author who studied medieval literature at Durham University and earned a PhD from Goldsmiths. He worked for seven years with voluntary service overseas in rural China and Eritrea, East Africa. His vivid descriptions of his experiences in historical fiction and travelogues have been acclaimed both at home and internationally. Well, except for that ban by the Chinese government. His work has been named by the Sunday Times, The Times, The Independent, The Telegraph on Sunday, and The Washington Posts on their Books of the Year lists. Justin, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you very much. So we've got a really interesting topic today. Not, not that it's not always interesting, but this is something that, you know, I 
think it's quite niche and, and I'm really excited to dive into it with you. It's ancient tea farmers. Yeah. Um, an incredible story actually that, that in many ways, um, tea is the first global commodity and its effects on the modern world have been huge. Um, in many ways, it's kind of shaped the modern world, but we'll get into that. Yeah, well, I know a little bit about that from my own work in the archaeology and history of um, the 17th and 18th century, the 18th century particularly. And, mm. you know, I did a lot of work at Colonial Williamsburg, and um, tea was a big deal until the coffee houses came along to challenge it. So we can have a, a duel of the, the colonial empires maybe later. <laughs> but anyway, um, great. I'd love it if you would give us a little orientation for where we're going today. Basically, tea farming in China 101, if you would. Yeah, so tea has been part of Chinese culture since um, kind of the, the year dot. I mean, it goes back to one of their kind of founding emperors who kind of has sort of a semi-religious um, status, um, emperor called Emperor Shen Nong, who supposedly was sitting under a a tree one day boiling water and a couple of leaves fell into it and he was so taken with this that um, he started the whole industry of of tea of making tea of course those leaves were from the camellia sinensis tree which is um, commonly known as the tea tree and so that's how tea culture started and for most of of Chinese history and, and probably now coming back in, um, tea was regarded as, as a health drink, a medicine. Um, and it was certainly as a medicine that it was kind of introduced into Europe. Tea was, uh, comes from um, the southwest of China. So uh, if people are aware of, of, of uh, bits of China, it's kind of the Yunnan and Sichuan provinces, which are down in the southwest, and they border uh, kind of Burma, Vietnam, Laos, uh, Tibet. Um, those kind of areas uh, and it spread um, throughout China and very early on gained a huge significance um, kind of with China and the wider realm it has a huge kind of cultural inference across East Asia um, but I was I was funnily listening to uh, an audiobook last night about um, the Mongolian conquest of China and strangely in, in the year 1070 uh, tea was already uh, figuring hugely with their relationship with the, the Mongolians because um, the emperors, the Song emperors of China um, put two ministries together. One was the Ministry of Horses and the Ministry of Tea. And they were using tea to buy horses, which they needed to fight off the Mongolians. So wow, it's an incredible two story. two ministries, really? And tea yes. made, made the cut. <laughs> yeah, tea and horses were, you know, combined. Um, so it's, it's a fascinating kind of glimpse into China. What exact area of China and what specific time period will we be focusing on today? Uh, there's so many different types of tea. Uh, one of the best ways of, of imagining it is thinking about uh, sort of French wine, um, where every single uh, kind of village has its own terroir, its own grape varieties. So there's lots of uh, very specialized areas. Um, there's kind of, oh, there's okay. Fujian, which is, near Shanghai, which a lot of kind of jasmine teas come from. But the one I know uh, probably best is uh, down in the southwest, which is uh, Yunnan, um, which is most famous now for its pu'er tea, um, which comes in kind of round cakes. And what's interesting about that, partly because 
the, uh, the, the, the oldest trees uh, of tea trees are often found in this area of southwest China. It's an area which is largely not populated by Han Chinese. Han Chinese are the kind of the Chinese that we know. But within China, I think there's um, something like 80 uh, minority peoples. And Yunnan, because it borders Vietnam and, and Burma and Laos, is mostly minorities. And they, they live in, in okay. the kind of mountains, forested mountains. If you've seen pictures often of kind of terraced hillsides with neat rows of bushes, uh, that's not how they grow their tea. Often their tea is growing wild in the jungles or the mountains, Ooh. and it's grown on, on trees. Um, and so they, they kind of climb up ladders. The, the tea plant will grow into a tree, but it's kept as a bush um, to make farming easier. But they, they will be climbing ladders into trees and picking leaves from there. Oh, well, I can't wait to get back and talk about that in more detail. That sounds like a very interesting day job where you get to gear up and head out into the jungle and, and find your trees that you're hoping have produced leaves in your absence. Um, yeah. But, okay, great. So it sounds like we're going to focus uh, on the southwest region, Yunnan province. Any particular time? And, again, if you could just sketch for us what was sort of the place of this area of China at this time within greater China, but also um, in terms of the world at large? Yeah, so taking the last question, uh, Yunnan, it means south of the clouds, uh, sort of a direct translation of the, the name of the province. Uh, and it was always a kind of um, a wild, uh, sort of semi-wilderness, slightly wild, slightly strange, slightly foreign. Again, you know, kind of populated by, by non-Han Chinese uh, peoples. China's gone through phases, or tea has such a long history, it's gone through phases of production. Um, so to kind of go through those very quickly, before the Song Dynasty, so we're talking about kind of the 1100s, uh, tea was mainly made into bricks. So it was kind of, it, the leaves were picked, they were fermented or allowed to oxidize to turn black. And then um, they were pressed or ground into bricks, uh, which was then as a, an easily kind of movable commodity. Yeah, I was going to say that that's probably a, a very easy way to stack and, and move things. Yeah, it was, it was, and then was then used as a currency as well in places where you were kind of beyond uh, money. It was used as a currency. Um, after the 1100s, uh, then kind of loose leaf tea comes in, especially with the, the Ming Dynasty, which is around 1400. Um, and different types like green teas, um, which are more expensive and, and slightly more um, easily uh, damaged. Uh, so in a sense, um, we have these kind of different periods of Chinese tea. Uh, I, my experience in Yunnan, I think is typical, you know, if we're talking, um, it's quite a crude form of tea they make. It's, it's a tea called pu'er which um, is, a, is a black tea, or it, it appears black. Um, it comes in round cakes, typically, um, which are pressed. And um, it's quite crude, so there's often kind of large leaves in there. Um, my experience was in the kind of early 90s, where um, the kind of the, the factoryization of Chinese tea production was starting to break down. Um, and so it was returning back to kind of... Um, pre-communist modes of production, uh, which I think are emblematic really of uh, 
kind of the, the peasant manner of making tea, you know, going back to 18th, 19th centuries uh, and probably beyond as well. How were different varieties of tea picked and processed? Tea is a huge commodity. Um, in these areas, uh, often the, the most of the tea that people are, are picking is for themselves. Um, so they have, uh, each family will have its own um, kind of area of, of, of mountain where the tea trees grow. Um, and there are various times of the year which um, produce different qualities of tea. Um, so the, the best tea comes from um, kind of early spring. It's often called uh, pre-Qingming. Qingming is a, the grave sweeping festival. Um, and it's kind of, oh. it comes, comes around Easter time. Um, but it's the kind of the first time people, typically families would go out into the mountains where their, their ancestors were buried and uh, sacrifice on their graves, but also have a kind of a picnic uh, in the countryside. So it was the first kind of time where you kind of threw off winter. Um, and the leaves that are picked in the pre-Qingming uh, period are the best because they are essentially the buds and the first leaves, and they have all the kind of stored energy of, of winter um, and everything that the roots are kind of throwing into them, and it's the first sprouts of the year. So these are the, the most expensive, the most expensive teas uh, across China, but uh, in the Yunnan province, these give you a certain kind of tea. Um, white teas, if you're familiar with white teas at all, um, which have become quite trendy, uh, these are generally the buds of a leaf rather than the leaf itself. Um, but typically you'll pick the, the first bud and the first leaf. And the last picking is kind of late summer. Um, and again, that'll give you a different flavor. And these leaves are then you know, carried back uh, to the houses and um, laid out uh, on huge kind of um, bamboo um, drying racks, really, and just left to dry in the sun. Um, and then they're, they're processed uh, into a kind of a brick shape. Um, and the, the leaves are kind of shoved into a sack and then often steams to make them soft. Having been dried, they, make, they seem to make them soft. And then they're pressed under rocks into a cake and left to dry. Um, and then uh, typically pu'er um, is quite rough in its early, you know, uh, early form. And it's typically left 10, 20 years um, 10 or 20 years yeah i think after 20 years um oh. it's it's uh this often, is a generational endeavor <laughs> yeah so then you know then, then it's, that's incredible um, yeah and so how you, does that work wait 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 where, where where does the tea hang out for sorry to interrupt but that that kind of blew my mind <laughs> yeah so you can put it in your in your you know roof area um you could have it younger it would just be kind of slightly rougher um and there were many ways that you could. Also, like a young wine. I mean, and yeah. I really love that analogy yeah. you set up at the beginning, and and the way you've talked about the different types of tea, and particularly the seasonal types of tea. Wow. So, okay, so they they put this tea up somewhere, and hopefully someone remembers it's it's there. I mean, I, I guess they're keeping track of how long individual batches have been aging. You know, how, how does how did the intricacies of this long process work? Do we know? Yeah, well, it's often taken to towns, um, and if you are selling the tea, it's taken to towns. And uh, if you're buying poor tea, when it's you know um, again very similar to wine in its kind of complexity, um, but essentially, if you're buying a, a kind of old brick of poor tea, it will say this has been aged in Kunming. Kunming is the capital of Yunnan province, 
um, and this gives is a gives you a certain quality to the the tea, or it's been aged in Hong Kong or Guangzhou, which is much more humid, and that will give it a, a different kind of quality to the tea. Um, so these these farmers in Yunnan will be making this tea um, and then parceling it off. It's often then once you've made your kind of your flat round cake, which is kind of a plate size. Uh, imagine kind of a thick plate. Oh, so it's big. Tea. Somehow I was thinking of smaller kind of plugs. Oh, okay, fascinating. So big. You can get smaller plugs uh, or bricks, but typically a kind of a plate-sized uh, disc. These are then uh, stacked, maybe 12 um, discs together and then wrapped in a bamboo kind of container, uh, and which is called a tong. And the tongs will be kind of loaded up onto uh, uh, lorries, taken to Kunming, and, and, and then left for, you know, 10, 20 years. Wow. Uh, perhaps longer and and these teas you know they command you know prices of thousands of of dollars you know so it's a it's quite an odd combination of quite rough ready raw hand-picked um a process which hasn't changed essentially you know for hundreds of years to then you know kind of entering the modern market so this makes me think about a million things i'm going to try to slow my <laughs> brain down but um i mean the first question I, I have for you is, you know, is tea farmers really kind of the accurate thing to call these people? They, they sound like pickers, certainly, but the way you've explained it, at least, it almost sounds as if it's a, it's a you know, this gathering, as a, you know, a hunting gathering type expedition. You know where these tea trees are and you go out and you find them at, at the season that matches the, the, the tea that you are hoping to acquire. Yeah, it's essentially foraging, really. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so different to farming in a way. Um, and it's, it's, it's an odd kind of crop that it, it happens through the year. Um, again, you know, with wine, obviously wine, there's a lot of, um, you've got to know when to pick your grapes or how sweet they are and all that kind of thing. Uh, so um, tea is odd in that it, you have a crop that you can pick through the year. Uh, and then you can blend those different pickings to create all kinds of different cakes. Farmers in that part of the country, they will be doing their, their real kind of, you know, uh, their life is, would be kind of a peasant farming. So they have the tea crops, they have, you know, some chickens, a couple of pigs, you know, they're doing a bit of everything. And, and all those crops are part of their, their everyday life and existence. And so presumably, you know, all of those crops are in some way or another part of their subsistence. Um, economy right you said that they they pick some tea leaves for their own consumption but it sounds like many of these leaves especially of the more valued variety are packed up in these cakes and trucked off to be stored and, and you know labeled as such and then broken out a generation later to great fanfare and and high prices can, can you lay out for me i guess the way you describe it as the value-added chain here. You know, it, I can't imagine that the original peasant farmer who gathered some of those leaves that are caked up and stored for a generation it, has got his hands out expecting to, to be paid the big bucks when this stuff is, is really at its peak. Yeah, this is actually quite a good thing about the Chinese tea industry. Um, I, I think tea is one of those industries worldwide where um, there's a lot of kind of poor labor conditions and exploitation. Um, because tea production has been sort of factory, you know, turned into a factory production. China is quite different um, because uh, its history has always been kind of village-based. Um, so the tea trade is controlled through villages. Um, 
again, kind of, I think the best comparison is France, where you have kind of tiny parcels of land that command, you know, ridiculous prices. Um, Funny enough, I uh, tease it released different times of the year, and I had an email yesterday from a, a top tea um, producer in uh, a London who specialised in these kinds of teas, and he was offering um, a selection of, I think, five teas of uh, six grams of each, and six grams is enough, a, a series of cups of tea. Um, and it was charging uh, 55 pounds for these um, essentially 30 grams of tea. Whoa. And the, the specificity was amazing because um, each tea was from a different tree. Uh, so this farmer had a series of trees on his land and they had different aspects, different terroir. And um, each of those kind of five teas, uh, it wasn't from a field. It was from a single tree that he had growing on his land. Um, and so, so these peasants, they may be farming subsistently, you know, growing their own uh, barley or, or rice or, or meat, but actually their tea crop is what, you know, is what feeds the family for the year. That's amazing. Well, that's a very sophisticated, I'm going to say that's a very sophisticated marketing game too. I mean, what I was thinking about as you said this is I once saw a website where you could order artisanal cheese and <clears throat> you would choose your cheese based on the cow that produced the milk. I mean, it was this family. No, I kid you not. It was, but it was great. They, they milked it. Sorry, I can't resist for all it was worth. They had these great little cereal stories about what was going on with Millie the cow versus George the cow and their, you know, ill-fated attempts at, at whatever um I, you know not romance obviously cows and, and don't do that but um it, it was really incredible and people people were all over it they were incredibly successful they charged a fortune for this cheese that was sourced not just to a specific farm but to a specific animal on that farm <laughs> that's great well i mean of course you know these uh, England now, I think um, we have a huge explosion of kind of artisanal cheeses, and um, they change as the season goes on because obviously the the grass that the the animals are, are eating changes as well. So it's it's fascinating. You know, one of the kind of wonders we have now is is getting this degree of um, specificity that we can get from you know these products or these or farmers can you know perhaps the, the interesting thing is that the farmers, especially tea farmers in China. Um, are becoming incredibly rich uh, on on their you know little plots of land. That's really interesting, and and it's so poetic too. I love the idea of you know drinking a cup of the season, right, of a particular region, and um, imagining the whole journey that these tea leaves have taken. It's so much more elaborate than I would have ever imagined. Yeah, and there's so much excitement when the first kind of. The first uh, pre-Qingming leaves are picked because it's your yeah, kind of your first Yeah, tell us about that. Flush. Let's imagine a family. They, they're, they're getting up in the morning and they're getting ready to head out for this, you know, annual adventure. Can you, can you just put that into a real step-by-step? Yeah, so it, it would often be done. So kind of imagine a village. It's often the women, um, but not exclusively. Uh, they'll be kind of up early, uh, the best time to pick you know, vegetables is, is kind of early in the day. They'll all be um, wearing uh, a kind of a, a, a rattan basket over their shoulders. Um, and they they head out, um, you know, depending where the trees are, kind of up into the, the woods or the, the forest. 
climbing some some uh, some of these shrubs because you're in the mountains you they have a kind of a bonsai effect so they're actually quite short um, and these tea trees you know hundreds of years old they'll be going up and uh, and looking for that first flush of bud and leaf um, and picking those you know put them into their into the pack over their shoulder um, and then often heading down um, kind of late mid-morning um, back to the the village where then uh, typically the men will be processing that tea. Different types of tea have different uh, procedures but one is to kind of dry it out um, and one of the questions that you have the one of the differences between green tea and black tea is is uh, how much you let it oxidize uh, once it's been picked before drying it. Oh, how interesting. So is it the same leaves? Um, yes, yeah, exactly the same. Yeah, exactly the same leaf. It depends on the processing. Um, and so a green tea leaf will be dried straight away so it doesn't oxidize at all. So it retains its green color. Um, an oolong which, or a wulong, um, which is kind of the in-between stage, it'll be slightly crushed maybe and left to, to brown a little bit and then dried. Um, and a black tea will be crushed and left to kind of oxidize entirely uh, and then dried. Um, so each each of the three different types of tea are a reflection of, of how, of when you, you dry the tea. Now largely done by kind of small factories, um, but it would, in historical terms, it would have been done often in a wok. Um, you have a kind of a In a wok, wok a, where you yeah. make a stir fry. Yeah, exactly. Really? I have a big, a big, <laughs> big wok uh, and, a hat, and a guy with a kind of a, a thick glove on um, and he'd be just um, turning the tea over and over inside the wok to dry it out. Okay, so it's accelerated. It's not just let to happen naturally. Yeah, or it, um, it could be left to happen naturally, but they're uh, typically done in a wok and you dry it out. And then often that can give you a, a certain shape. Um, so uh, Longjing is a famous area of eastern China where the leaves are very flat. And that's because they, they're pressed against the side of the wok as they are dried, which flattens them out. Then you have the dry tea. Uh, and again, um, in Yunnan, you'd be mixing, you'd be taking that dry tea and mixing it typically with, with pickings from throughout the year. Um, whereas if you are picking a, a, an expensive longjing um, tea, then you would then be selling that. Uh, and again, each, each farmer would um, you know, set, set up a stall. Uh, it's fascinating to go to now because you turn up and... Um, each farm has their own little bit of field uh, with the tea plants in um, and each farmer's house kind of also uh, is, a, is a shop and a tea storage area and you can kind of walk along and try each tea made by each farmer along the, you know, on the side of the fields uh, and pick your own. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so there is some tea that's grown in kind of what we would think about as, as, as traditional farms and fields devoted to, to that crops cultivation uh, probably most of it is um tea plants like fairly cool misty damp uh, conditions so a lot of southern china is perfect for that so the sort of tea growing band you know heads from um kind of the hangzhou area which is close to shanghai all the way across um uh, fujian hunan um, guizhou uh, all the way across southern china uh, and a lot of that would be grown in terraces uh, with the kind of the tea bushes um, sort of toperized into kind of waist high. So it's very easy to pick. And, and 
on those farms, just the, the top leaves are picked because those are the fresh growth. Um, and because it's quite complicated, I think only in Japan has tea picking been in, you know, industrialized. In Japan, they have such a kind of labor shortage. They have machines to pick it. But in China, it's all picked by hand. Is the tea that is cultivated in the fields generally different from the tea that is foraged up in the mountains on particular sort of seasonal celebratory missions? <laughs> Most of the tea in China is probably grown in, in plantations. And again, it really depends on what tea that is of how expensive it could be. Um, so you have the, the very expensive long jing teas. You have teas like jasmine tea, which um, the tea leaves are then um, sprinkled with uh, jasmine buds in the evening. And then in the night, the jasmine flowers open up, release their scent. Um, and then all the jasmine buds are taken away and removed. The whole thing is repeated maybe four or five nights um, so that the tea then takes on the flavor of jasmine. Um, oh, that's, wow. that's, an, that's another kind of tea, but uh, you get a tea like kind of Lapsang Sushan, where the tea is, after it's dried, it's then smoked over charcoal fires, which gives you that smoky flavor. There are so many different types. I mean, it's just, yeah. you, it's, what, it's like, you know, uncovering a rock and then just finding all the little bugs <laughs> underneath. <laughs> well, I love hearing you talk about this. I'm no tea expert, but I really enjoy drinking tea and I, I often don't really understand anything about what I'm drinking. And it's it's clearly such a beautiful industry, actually. Mm. Um, even on this plantation scale, you're describing the processes sound really artisanal. Um, and is it it's still that way today? It sounds like. Yeah, I think so. It's again, it's very varied. But um, the Chinese, in many ways, once they opened up after kind of dung shopping. They uh, were very influenced by Western ideas. And um, in the 90s, I kind of noticed a trend for the Chinese to start looking back onto their own culture. And so in the last 20 years, there's been a huge explosion of interest and enthusiasm in traditional Chinese tea culture, which means that um, all kinds of teas are being rediscovered or um, small local varieties are, are gaining a kind of international market. Uh, which just is kind of exploding, um, you know, the amount of tea that's being produced and the types of tea that are being produced. And then the whole kind of tea culture that goes with it. I think one of the really interesting things about tea is, um, is the kind of the artistic uh, experience that almost kind of Zen-like experience goes with it. Um, so tea typically, um, was often kind of promulgated in the early years uh, through the monasteries. Um, so tea plantations often found near monasteries. The Chinese culture uh, or Chinese tea culture has had a huge revival. And, um, you know, just looking at um, the internet yesterday, uh, there was a really interesting uh, article I, I came across of um, a, a tourist experience where you could go and pick tea for a day. And this is clearly kind of advertising to uh, the kind of up and trendy, you know, urban youth of Shanghai, where you could, um, you could pick tea for a couple of hours, uh, you could, you know, have lunch there, you could then, um, you know, dry your tea in the wok and then take it home with you. And they were, they were saying, oh, you know, wow. <laughs> you, you can live stream from here, all this kind of stuff. So clearly, um, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And it's great to see how the Chinese are embracing their own uh, 
history and tradition of tea. Yeah, well, that's a great segue. I would love to talk to you a little bit more specifically about kind of what what tea means to the Chinese people. It's one of the things I think central to Chinese culture. Ask any Chinese person, they can, they can list you the things that they invented, you know, uh, paper, tea, uh, gunpowder. So tea uh, is, is hugely important. And if you go to China now, uh, everyone has tea. Uh, you know, there's typically um, these expensive teas are produced in a tea ceremony where you have very small teapots of about 100 milliliters um, or a few ounces of water in them, which you infuse for between five and you know, 10, 20 seconds, um, and then pour into your cups. And you do that you know, with the same pot of tea a number of times. Um, that's kind of the high uh, tea culture. Uh, typically, you have um, people in China, everyday tea, they'll have a kind of cup of tea on the go. And it won't be in a cup, it'll be in a kind of jam jar, a large jam jar, which holds about a pint and a half of water. And they'll have a kind of sprinkling of tea leaves in there and um, often kind of cooled water. And they'll just keep topping that up through the day. Um, uh, and this is, you know, a very common sight around China. Um, everyone has some hot water flasks on the go. Um, so tea is, is kind of central. Um, and uh, even, you know, coffee has kind of made inroads, I think, you know, especially when they were looking for kind of foreign uh, culture and foreign influences. But Again, as I say, tea has really come back. Um, and I think they are celebrating the fact that they have, you know, the, the, be the best and most diverse teas in the world. Yeah. And, and how about its importance in socioeconomic terms? I mean, is this a big part of the Chinese economy? Was it in the past? Is it still today? Do you know? Yeah, so hugely. I mean, I was talked earlier about how in the Song Dynasty, in about the year uh, 1050, it starts. And it... Um, it lasts till about 1300. Uh, it's destroyed by, finally, by Kublai Khan, the grandson of Genghis Khan. We're familiar also with the Silk Road, um, which is kind of is a German, a German uh, historian, I think, gave it that name in the 19th century, which is the yeah. idea of a series of of trade routes that crosses Asia to Europe. But actually, predating the Silk Road and postdating it is the Great Tea Road. And the Great Tea Road uh, goes back as, as far as we know, really, where these um, early black brick teas were carried out of China um, into kind of the steppes of, of Asia and Eurasia. Um, and this went on uh, right up until the communists, you know, kind of take over in 1949. I lived for a, a while in uh, Shanxi province, which is kind of north central China. Um, and Shanxi province, it was very poor agriculturally, but it had like 70% of China's historical monuments. A huge amount of, of furniture that's sort of sold out of China or antique furniture comes from Shanxi province. And the reason for that is because Shanxi province was um, a, the province of bankers. And they became bankers because they were financing the tea trade that went up oh. into Mongolia and up into Russia. Uh, so um, huge importance. Um, you think of all kind of China's neighbors, they're all, you know, tea drinking countries and China controlled that, you know, this kind of elixir that everyone else wanted. Tea very early became um, a kind of a, a mark of social interaction, um, had this kind of Zen quality again, because a lot of tea plantations are in the, they have the wilds, uh, where obviously where monasteries were. 
you have uh, the classic of tea, I think written uh, in the early uh, 200 AD or 200 of the Christian era, era um, which is all about how to make tea and how to you know, prepare tea. Uh, so it's hugely culturally important to China. Uh, and it's, it's inter- one very interesting thing is you can, you can see how people, how the, the Asian countries around China discovered tea by the kind of tea they drink or even the word they use for it. Um, so different parts of China pronounce the, the, the character for tea in a different way. There's, um, so in some parts of the country, it's called tea, uh, which uh, has given us the English word tea. And in other parts of the country, it's pronounced cha, um, which in slang in England, we can, you know, cup of cha is also the same for cup of tea. But you can divide the world pretty much into people who call it cha for uh, tea or chai in India and Arabic countries or tea as in kind of uh, uh, Holland, England uh, and places. Uh, And with uh, Japan, so we're very familiar with the Japanese um, tea ceremony where they have powdered tea, which they whisk in a bowl. Um, And this is because they discovered tea during the Tang dynasty. And that was the Chinese method of making tea then. Um, And so it's kind of a cultural um, relic that's preserved in Japan, which has long since fallen out of fashion in China. No one in China drinks powdered tea anymore, but they did during the Tang Dynasty. So it's very interesting. When was the Tang Dynasty? So, sorry, these are also um, unfamiliar to me and perhaps to some listeners. <laughs> yeah, no, I apologize. Uh, no. The Tang Dynasty is from about 600 to the 900s. Um, ah, okay, okay, okay. So even earlier. Yeah. Uh, so it's fascinating kind of seeing a- China's influence across Asia, really, um, uh, through tea. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And, and so this makes me wonder, you know, what is the impact on the tea farmer, on the producer of this incredibly economically and culturally precious commodity? I mean, is, is there a certain prestige to doing this work? I think there is. Yeah. There's, they're seen as people who are kind of upholding a Chinese tradition. Again, I think, you know, think of it a French, uh, you know, winemaker there's something um even if you're a peasant with kind of your you know dirt under your fingernails there's something um quite elite uh because you're you're producing something for an elite um who appreciate it and so even if you're not necessarily making it rich then you're you're a very important person in, in kind of wider society or there's a certain status uh, a non-economic status might be the best way of explaining it. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And and that makes me wonder, you know, how how much money would one of these tea producers have hoped to make? And and how would it compare to income from some of the other crops you've mentioned? Many of them would have been cultivating alongside tea. Yeah, I think until recently, um, it was just the the size of China meant that uh, you were largely supplying a local market. So um, kind of if we're looking back 100 years or, or further, um, it was difficult to become rich on tea if you were a producer. Mm. Now, now, of course, with Chinese farmers kind of, you know, plugged into international markets and with the internet, they can be making, you know, tens of thousands of pounds, you know, for a kilo of tea uh, from the top producers. Uh, so, you know, you can really, you know, you can be a, a rich peasant farmer um, on your tea produce production. And is the, is the knowledge about how to produce these teas, um, 
passed down through generations or you know is there some kind of training that people typically go through to learn how to unlock the wonders of this leaf and all the ways you can process it differently yeah it's often handed down through the families um thinking again of of longjing which is near shanghai um which is a very famous tea um when you're when you're frying it in a wok uh it's a, there's a very fine line between kind of overcooked longjing and perfectly cooked longjing and um I said, it's kind of typically, you know, you see people doing it with a glove. Um, I've seen old men doing it with their bare hands. And they said, actually, you can't do it properly unless you're doing it with your bare hands. Um, and so this kind of family skill is passed down, you know, from father to son. The family secrets. Exactly. Of exactly how to get it right. It sounds like there's a lot of overlap between ancient processes of cultivating and processing this tea and the modern day. But... I suppose if you had to sort of sum it up in a in a in a in a nutshell, how has this job changed over time? If it has really changed, I think the, the biggest change is the the market that the, the farmers can get to, um, and then then the sort of the social status they can acquire from that. The again, kind of Longjing is a great example because it is around a, a village called the Dragon Well. Um, which is a little kind of pond um, in a in a valley, uh, and the farmers, all the farmers of that valley, and kind of valleys beyond, because um, obviously when you're producing such a small area, then uh, only so many people can afford it. So then you get kind of you know how close you are to that that dragon well, that pool of water, then dictates your you know your price. Uh, so. I think that the great thing, uh, or the biggest change, is that farmers now are becoming rich, um, which then, in a sense, protects the uh, authenticity um, and the, the manner of production, um, because farmers can, you know, they can make a good income from their small bit of land. Um, they can educate their kids, you know, build new houses, all these kind of things, um, which materially, you know, affect and improve their lives. Um, and they can do that, in a sense, uh, protecting the environment as well. I mean, they, uh, I think, kind of in the 90s and early noughties, there was a lot of uh, chemicals and fertilizers used. And I think partly through um, uh, kind of Western um, uh, tea buyers, uh, but, you know, also through kind of the Chinese market themselves being much more aware of pollution, and, and damage that uh, they can do to these these precious areas that they um they're typically you know more and more being grown organically um and uh the farmers then has a a very vested interest in protecting the environment around his particular tea plantation or trees i guess w- would you describe these processes of moving to more kind of sustainable environmentally sound cultivation uh one possible future for the tea production industry and its farming? Yeah, I think so. It has a fairly low environmental impact. You know, so the biggest problem with tea plantations globally, uh, and I think it's probably less so for China, is the deforestation that happens uh, to actually oh, put the, right. the plantation in there. China is is mostly mountainous, um, and there are some areas which you can't cultivate. Um, kind of tea production I talked about first in Yunnan, whether it's kind of foraging rather than uh, growing, you know, is a, is a good way of using that kind of land. 
lot of it is being industrialized for kind of the cheap teas, but for the top end, um, there's kind of there's money and there's kudos in preserving these old, uh, unique, very um, specific to their areas forms of production. Uh, so they're they're all coming back, and you know, amazingly, you, you can see a lot of these on YouTube, or you know, if you kind of Google you know tea on YouTube, you'll you'll find a lot of these things. Interestingly, uh, well, something kind of quite interesting here is people have started growing tea in England um, and uh, in Scotland as well. Actually, there's there's a quite a uh, industry of extremely high end Scottish teas, and you'd think Scotland's kind of much too cold uh, for tea, but again. Tea likes, tea's a mountainous uh, plant. It likes cold, damp um, environments. So actually, you know, Britain, large parts of Britain are perfect for them. And, and with the Gulf Stream, oh, <laughs> keeping kind of the west coast of Scotland quite warm, there's a lot of tea plantations now in Scotland um, who are, are making tea. So this tea culture has spread <clears throat> all around the world. And as well as uh, the actual tea, there's, of course, all the things you need to drink tea. Um, you know, so you need uh, a teapot, you need your cups, there's chinaware. Um, uh, so the different parts of the world, one of the kind of up and coming parts of the world that I know of is um, the Czech Republic, which has, you know, since it's become free from communism, has got very into tea culture. Um, and they've kind of, they've gone straight into kind of Chinese teas. Um, and uh, they have also have a history of, of pottery. So a lot of kind of the best um, teapots and teaware um, you find on kind of forums on the internet is coming from Czech, uh, uh, Czech and Polish um, craftsmen. So it's amazing how this tea culture has spread, you know, from China to you know, Japan and to the rest of the world and how it's being reinvigorated as well, I think, um, as China rediscovers its, its many tea traditions. Now, that's interesting on so many levels. I mean, mm. first of all, um, I think it really brings to the forefront the important social function, the sort of um, um, the way in which tea is uh, a group activity, right? The partaking yeah. of it. And also certain Western ideas about tea and about China by extension. Well, I think one, one of the interesting things about Western misconceptions kind of goes way back as as the tea trade developed um, Westerners were not allowed to set foot in China so it was kind of managed um, by these uh, Tong families in Canton um, who would sell tea and for a long time the Westerners had no idea that um, they thought that green tea came from a green tea plant you know oolong tea came from oolong tea plant and Black tea yeah, I kind of thought so, that until our conversation. I had yeah. to say. <laughs> yeah. So um, they were amazed to find it all comes from one plant, um, and I think a, a British kind of um, uh, horticulturist managed to sneak into China and, and and bring out some tea plants or tea plant seeds, which he then took to um, India and planted there. And it was only after they um, had the tea plantations going that they realised actually. Uh, the same plant grows um, in India. So you have the Camellia sinensis is the Chinese tea plant, but you have Camellia um, assamicus, which is the Indian tea plant. Um, and the Indian tea plant was growing in India the whole time. So it's kind of, you know, it's an interesting um, little observation there. But uh, Indian tea, the assamicus or Assam teas, uh, are a bit more bitter and not as um, kind of high quality as the Chinese ones, um, which is 
one reason why the, the kind of the British breakfast tea is such a kind of strong, heady brew, because obviously um, the British started buying more and more of their uh, tea from India. Um, and so uh, that kind of gave us the British yeah, cup colonial of tea. goods are cheap for the colonizer. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Were there any risks in this job of of farming tea? I think it, it's a fairly safe uh, occupation in terms of, you know, as long as you can climb a ladder and pick tea, you're fine. Uh, unless you think, fall off, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Unless you're falling off, um, which is why they, they would now make, you know, tea plants quite, you know, waist high. So they're very easy to pick. Um, I think for the kind of the, the modern Chinese farmer, then the, the biggest dangers are, uh, you know, injuring yourself and not being able to pick tea at the right time, because clearly oh, okay. for your high-end teas, you've got to be picking them at exactly the right time in order to get the highest prices. Yeah, that makes sense. Justin, what do you think is the legacy of the tea industry in the modern world? In many ways, the modern world has been shaped by the tea industry. It's the first global commodity that's traded around the world. In terms of the British Empire, the British Empire was the center of two kind of great triangles. One was the tea industry of, of you know, ships going to India, taking textiles and opium to China, coming back with tea. And the other one, of course, was the slave industry, which was bringing sugar back to the British, putting you know, the British were the first people to put sugar in their tea. So, oh, yeah, absolutely uh, intertwined the, those two industries. Yeah, the, it's the center of these two kind of you know, huge global industries. Um, and in terms of kind of the geopolitics, the, the French and uh, English fights in the Americas and the Caribbean were all around uh, kind of you know, slave or sugar, sugar producing areas. Um, the uh, war of uh, independence or the war of liberation um, for America is, you know, the, the central um, driving force is the tea tax. Um, I think kind of the British government That's right. taxing, they're taxing the, tea at 100. Boston Tea Party. <laughs> exactly, 112%. And uh, I had some great accounts of kind of uh, good, virtuous um, American ladies who are kind of suffering. They're making raspberry leaf tea. Um, as a kind of protest against the British government, um, kind of pre-liberation or pre-independence. And they are kind of, you know, virtually saying, this is just, just as good as tea, when, you know, when, when of course it's not. <laughs> but that, you know, so America becomes a coffee drinking nation. Um, exactly. And this is, a this is a political statement. Oh, it is. It is. Um, I excavated a coffee house, an 18th century coffee house in Williamsburg, and it oh, emerged at the time it did for a very specific reason. Yeah. And of course, in... In Asia, you know, oh, Hong Kong just went back to China in 1997, but the whole opening up of, um, of China um, to uh, kind of globalization and global trade, the, the largest driver of that is tea. I mean, I think in the 18th century, China was called the graveyard of silver because wherever you mint a silver coin, it will end up in China because everyone wanted to buy tea. And this was huge, causing a huge kind of economic imbalance, which is why, um, you know, the, the British ended up uh, growing opium in India to sell to the Chinese. Um, so the legacy of kind of all this is, is down to the desire for people to drink tea, which um, in itself was kind of revolutionary. You know, in, it's, it shaped Britain or changed Britain and British culture hugely before tea breakfast was porridge and beer. Uh, and then suddenly you can have a kind of a, a sweet, you know, caffeine-laden um, cup of tea instead. And 
Yeah, rather than something that makes you drowsy, I'm all for that at breakfast. Absolutely, <laughs> and it's it, the first. I think the first tea house in England uh, is centered in Oxford because you know one of the first kind of groups to start using it was was students and academics who think, okay, brilliant, I can stay up late writing uh, because this will keep me awake. So uh, its influence has been huge. Yeah, I mean, it, that's that is such a fascinating um, anecdote, but uh, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Yeah, and it's it's amazing how quickly it happens. I think the first tea that's drunk in China, I mean, England that we know of is in 1660, when two ounces of tea are brought to Charles II's court. Uh, and by 1801, there's 24 million pounds worth of tea being imported every year. And the average Brit is drinking at least two cups a day. Um, and it's become a mass commodity. And uh, it's just incredible how quickly it happens and how how it, it changes so much. I mean, you kind of, you look at your, you know, our words, China, uh, because tea is such a light crop, light um, trading good, then you needed a ballast to keep the ships, you know, steady in the storms. So one of the few things you could pack in with tea was uh, China. Um, so ch uh, Chinese ceramics were packed into tea crates uh, because they were heavy and they, they wouldn't spoil the tea. Um, and so, you know, kind of you look at your, your table now, you know, before we had China, we were using uh, wooden plates and bowls. Um, so you're, you look at your table, it's just full of things which are influenced by the tea trade. Would you have made a good tea farmer, do you think, Justin? <laughs> <laughs> I think I would, actually. <laughs> yeah, I think I would. Um, I've, if I had a choice, I would be the Yunnan style of forager, I think. Me too. It's so romantic. Yeah, and it's a it's a beautiful part of the world, um, and I like the I like kind of things in balance in my life. Um, and so, idea of kind of getting up and seeing rows and rows of plantation, um, all, all those all those bushes that needed picking, I think that might be a bit oppressive at times. Um, whereas the kind of opportunity to go up into the wilds and pick from trees, which are Again, these are kind of specified when you're buying teas, they can be, you know, 800 more years old. Um, you know, they kind of things grow slowly there and they die slowly. Uh, so to kind of go up into the wilderness and pick trees uh, or pick leaves from these tea trees, I think that that'd be a good, a good life, I think. Oh, I'm there. I'm with you. Give me my bamboo basket. I'm ready to go. <laughs> Justin, thank you so much. I am um, actually my my brain is awash with all sorts of new information. I have learned so much talking to you. Thank you for taking the time to share this really fascinating job of Chinese tea farmers and your insight about how, really how pivotal the entire tea industry and all of the ancillary industries it spawned has been shaping the modern world. Yeah, absolute pleasure. The legend of tea's discovery by Emperor Shen Nong is fact or fiction. Tea's global and lasting impact is indisputably legendary. What began as an intergenerational family affair in the ancient Far East expanded throughout the world, becoming the first global commodity and a product that today is enjoyed daily by billions. I think it's safe to say that tea's not going anywhere anytime soon. And we owe our favorite infusions to those tea farmers of old, 
the foraging families who seasonally gathered and prepared tea leaves for consumption thousands of years ago. Something to mull over the next time you're sipping that cup of English breakfast in the wee hours of the morning. I know I'll be doing just that. Until next time. Hey there. You can follow today's guest at jhillauthor on Twitter and at justinhillauthor on Instagram. Plus, you can check out his website, justinhillauthor.com, for more info about his published works, including his latest novel, coming soon in 2021. In case you didn't know, we're on Twitter, at Working OT Series, with plenty of exciting show updates, additional content, and a chance to win your very own time machine. Uh, well, okay, I may have gotten a little carried away with that last one. But we do have a really exciting announcement to make in the coming weeks, so stay tuned. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help get the word out. And share the show with the history lovers in your life. Until next time. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan Law Liberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on social media for additional content and show updates at Working OT Series on Twitter and Working Overtime Series on Instagram. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Thanks so much for listening.